Good morning and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name. Before I begin, I'd just like to take the opportunity to thank you all as a congregation for y'all's prayers and words of encouragement over the last several weeks. It's been appreciated and encourage you to continue to pray for us in the added responsibility that we face. <clears throat> invite you to turn this morning to First Peter again. Several weeks ago, we looked at uh, verses, forgetting now where we started, but we ended with verse 16. And in those verses, we had a call to action for the believer, a call to be sober, to be self-controlled, and to live in hope, and to live lives of holiness. So, I'd like to continue on this morning, starting at verse 17 through the end of the chapter, and uh, some of these thoughts uh, tie together. So let's read uh, verses 17 through 25 at this time. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, forasmuch as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is, is as the flower of, the gra of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. So verse 17, he begins by saying, If you call on the Father. The King James often expresses things in a way that's somewhat different than what we normally would express it. But this, if ye call on the Father, could maybe better for us be stated as since you call on the Father. He's giving instructions to those of us who have called on the Father. And so I see here that he is continuing the theme of those who have called on the Father, those who identify as his children. You ever think of that? If we have called on God as our Father, we are identifying as God's children. And he is calling us who have done that to live 
a different lifestyle than the world, to be God's children, not children of the world. But I want to look here at the central portion of this verse, verse 17. It tells us a little bit about God. It tells us of his character. It tells us that he is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't look at people and because of who you are or what your position is or your nationality or your background or whatever, he doesn't look at anyone differently. He's no respecter of persons. He is, it says that, uh, that he will judge everyone according to their works. And so we can rest assured that God is a judge, but in that he is a just judge because he is not a respecter of persons. He won't treat me different because of who I am. And he won't bypass someone else's sins and failures because of who they are. Neither will he overlook someone's sin or failures because they've had a hard life. Because they've faced many challenges in life. And you know, that is a mindset, that's a humanistic mindset that is very alive and prevalent in the world today. That because someone has lived a difficult life, has faced many difficult things, that God's going to be merciful to that person. And that's not the case. God is not a respecter of persons. He will judge justly and fairly based upon our lives. And it says here that he will judge everyone justly according to their works. That's something that's impressed me before in in the scriptures that, and I didn't look up a bunch of references on this, but there are different times in scripture that it makes it clear that at the final judgment, we are going to be judged according to our works. And we teach that we must believe by faith. So how do we, how do we put those two together? Well, works don't save us. But true faith in the Lord is going to produce works. Works that are an evidence of our salvation. Works that are an evidence of God working in our hearts. I had to think of the, the Jesus telling of the, of the judgment of the sheep and the goats there in Matthew 25. And in that judgment, it's portrayed as a judgment based on works. Because he said to the, to the one group, you know, you saw me you know, poor and, and naked and in prison, and you ministered to me. And they said, well, when did we do those things? And to the other group, he said the same thing, but he said, you didn't do it. And so it was based upon what they had done. But what they had done was based upon what Christ had done in their hearts, the change that he had brought. 
We can't work our way to salvation. We can't work our way to being judged rightly by God or having that, the outcome of God's judgment that we desire. But true salvation is going to produce those works. As our hearts are changed and our focus is directed to others, our focus is directed to the needs around us rather than towards self. James says in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So, we don't try to go and perform works so that we appear right or so that we gain salvation. But true salvation will bring about a change in the fruit that our lives produce. Jesus said about false teachers in Matthew 7.20 that we'll be able to identify them by their fruit. I think we could say without doing injustice to the scripture that we will identify them by their works, by what their lives produce. So moving on, since we know that we'll be judged impartially by holy God, Peter says that we need to pass our time of sojourning here in fear. What's a sojourner? A sojourner is someone who is passing through or someone who is a temporary resident. Someone that doesn't identify with the country that they find themselves in. They are simply passing through. And I think that's something for us to, to realize. He just uses that word here, but it's something for us to key on and to think about. Am I a sojourner in this world? Am I identifying with the things of this world? Or am I living a life that's evident that I am just passing through? That I have a different destination than many of the people in the world around me? he uses this term to impress upon us that our citizenship is not on this earth but we have a claim to another country as God's children we're passing through this life in this world in preparation for the next life in the next world in the preparation for eternity So what does it mean to pass that time of sojourning in fear? I don't believe that that is, means that we need to be trembling in fear and, and in terror of the Lord if we're right with Him. But I believe that it's speaking of a reverence and a respect for God. It speaks of a fear that motivates us to service for Him. We we want to do what's right because we know who God is. We know that God is a just judge. Why do we obey the laws of the land where we live? I hope we obey because God tells us to obey. 
but we also obey because we have a fear of the consequences. If I go out here on the way home, I violate every law of the road that I can think of. On the roads I drive, it's very unlikely that I'm going to meet a law enforcement officer. But if I do, and I meet a law enforcement officer, I have a fear that I will be stopped, and I will be have a ticket written, and I will go before a just judge, and I will face the consequences. In the same way, we have a reverent fear for God because we know that we will stand before him someday and he will judge us justly for this brief moment of time that we have lived on this earth. So we need to live out that brief moment of time in fear of the Lord and seeking to spend our time on this earth in his service. Moving on to verses 18 and 19, he talks here about our redemption. If we have called on the name of the Father, if we identify as his children, we have been redeemed. To be redeemed is to be bought back. Peter was writing in a time of slavery. In the Roman Empire, there over the time of Christ and of the early church and of the apostles, slavery was very prominent. Within Rome itself, it has been estimated that as many as approximately, plus or minus, a third of the population were slaves. As you moved out of the center of Rome, out into the different provinces, that number dropped somewhat. But in the Roman Empire, roughly somewhere between a half and one-third of the people were slaves. Their culture, their, their uh, economy was built upon slavery. The people that Peter was writing to here understood the term redemption. Buying back, purchasing someone out of slavery. In fact, I was doing just a little bit of research this morning on this, and apparently one of the common ways of redeeming someone from slavery was for the slave to actually buy their own freedom. So we might not have that background, but it's a picture of what God has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because we have all been born as slaves to sin, to self, and to Satan. And I thought, maybe that helps us to remember. What have we been born slaves to? Self, sin, and Satan. It all starts with an S. But Jesus paid the price for our redemption. He paid what it cost for us to be bought back, to be bought out of that, into God's possession. And he says that, that redemption was from our vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. And I like how the New International Version puts that. It says that 
that we were redeemed from our vain conversation, received by tradition. I guess I'm reading the wrong, I'm reading the wrong quote here. It says, redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. That's what it means that, that vanity is something that is empty. So he's talking about an empty way of life, an empty lifestyle. Handed down to you from your fathers. The traditions of men. Man's attempt at religion, apart from following God's commands, are but an empty way of life. And we tend to pursue those things, those things that are a form of religion without a substance. A form of religion without a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says those things are but an empty way of life. There's no merit. There's no value. There's no salvation. True redemption comes only through surrender to Jesus as Lord. Through accepting His sacrifice, through living for Him, through following His ways. And He says that this redemption is not purchased with corruptible or perishable things such as silver or gold. Our redemption isn't like being bought back as a slave where a set value of money was exchanged and since I'll give you this money and you give me my freedom. Actually, what I read this morning, they said that part of at least the, the act of a slave buying their own freedom was giving their master enough money that he could buy slave in replacement of them. So, rather than having a, a sum of money that I have to give to be bought out of slavery to sin, we've been purchased rather through the precious blood of Christ, a sacrifice of much more value than anything that we as mankind could ever offer. His sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. We all know that in the Old Testament times they had to offer the animal sacrifices. But that animal sacrifice was commanded that it was to be perfect and without blemish. And so Christ fulfilled that requirement. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was without blemish. Hebrews 9.12 says that he by his own blood entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Jesus acted as that high priest and with his own blood entered into the holy place to purchase our freedom from sin. All we need to do is accept that provision for redemption and follow him from that point. In verse 20, speaking about the redemption plan that God has for us, is an extremely remarkable verse to me. Because here in verse 20, we're told that God's plan of redemption for mankind was put in place before the foundation of the world. That is astounding to me. 
We can't understand God's mind, God's purposes. But we see here that even before God created the world, even before He created mankind, He knew that sin would be a problem. And that we would need to be redeemed in order to have a, a right and, and holy relationship with the holy God. And God in His mercy planned ages past for this plan of salvation to be available to us today. It says that He has revealed it in these last times in those last times, I believe, refers to the gospel dispensation, the time from Christ forwards to the end of time. And he says that he has revealed it for us. God planned it ages past before you and I were created before Adam and Eve were created, before the world was created, but He planned it for you and for me. We are the fortunate beneficiaries that live in those last times, the time of the gospel dispensation, that we can be partakers of this redemption. To me, that's amazing. And it makes me think back to verses 10 and 12 here in 1 Peter 1 where Peter said that the prophets who prophesied about the coming of the Lord searched diligently into the circumstances of the fulfillment of their prophecy because they recognized that they were prophesying about a time that held great promise for mankind. They were eager to know about it. They wanted to experience it for themselves. And we are the ones that are the beneficiaries today. Are we as excited about what it means for us today as what those ancient prophets were who prophesied about the coming of the Lord? Do we realize, do we grasp the scope of what redemption from the slavery of sin means for us, for you and for me today? I dare say that we don't fully grasp that. I don't believe that I do. And I think that one reason that we fail to grasp the seriousness of the bondage to sin is that we live in a very sinful society that normalizes many sins. There's many things that are abhorrent to God that in our society are portrayed as innocent. They're portrayed as a normal part of life. And I'm not talking about just aberrant lifestyles, etc. There's many small things that are portrayed by the world around us as just being normal. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. But when you read in Scripture and you think about it, it's so far away from God's plan for mankind. Brothers and sisters, we need to study God's Word 
And we need to develop a view of sin that is shaped by His view of sin. The view of sin that He has, that He's revealed to us in His Word. And once we start to begin to get a grasp of the way that God views sin, we're going to have a much deeper appreciation for the redemption that's been made available for you and for me. Because it's not just about going to heaven someday. It's about being freed from the bondage of sin in this life as well. Let's be grateful that we are recipients of what Christ has done, what was prepared and planned ages past. Verse 21, we see that it's through Jesus that we believe in God. I thought that was kind of interesting. We read the Bible and we like to read and think about God, but it says here, that who by him, speaking of Jesus, believe in God. So it's through Christ that we really believe in God. And you know, Jesus, during his life and ministry on earth, was the revelation of God the Father to us. It's through a lot of the things that he taught that we have a deeper fuller understanding of who God is. Jesus told us in John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And also in John 14, 9, he told Thomas, He that has seen me hath seen the Father also. So, Jesus, in his time on earth, And his teaching was a representation of God the Father. And so it's it's through Christ that that God is really revealed and fleshed out, we could say. And also we see that God has raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him so that we can be reconciled. Not only know God, but be reconciled to him. I just see in this, in these these numbers of verses here, God's deep desire for mankind to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to have a relationship with him where that relationship was broken by sin. God wants to draw mankind, his, his crowning creation, created in the image of God. He wants to draw us to him. He wants us to know him. And so he sent his son to teach us, to, to direct us, and to redeem us. Then moving on to verse 22, we see the effect that the message of salvation has on those who accept it. When we hear the gospel message, when when we become aware of the 
of the gospel of the, the redemption plan, we are faced with a choice. We are faced with a choice. Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? Peter says that these believers had not only heard the message, but they had also obeyed the truth of that message. And we see that the truth of the gospel message when obeyed has a purifying effect on our souls. It says, seeing you've purified your souls and obeying the truth. As we accept the message of salvation, as we experience that redemption, we're going to experience a drastic change in our lives. Because to accept the truth of the gospel is to accept Jesus' teachings, to accept his, his way. And so what is that? What are Jesus' teachings? I don't know what, where you'd start if you're going to list what Jesus' core teachings are. A lot of people would probably say love and some things like that. But I really believe that Jesus' core teaching is that we're to die to self. We're to crucify the old man, crucify our flesh. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do, not to do his own will, he said, but to do the will of the Father. So if we're going to follow the gospel way, we're not here to do our own will. We're here to do the will of the Father. Jesus came to die, to suffer, to be rejected. Those are things that we must embrace if we're going to embrace, embrace the, the redemption that Christ has provided for us, and if we're going to find the, the way to God, again, we don't find God through our works, but when we find redemption, when we, we, are, when we are recipients of that redemption, our lives will produce works. And we will find ourselves doing these things, dying to self, crucifying the old man. And this has a purifying effect on our life. It gets rid of those things of self and sin and Satan. And I dare say that if you haven't experienced that purifying, ongoing purifying effect in your life, maybe you haven't fully embraced the truth of the gospel, the message of redemption. Another effect of embracing the truth of the gospel is that we will develop within us what he calls here an unfeigned love of the brethren. Self is no longer in focus. We become members of a body, members of the body of Christ. And we'll have a love 
It's going to cause us to care for our brothers and sisters in the church. And that term unfeigned means true, nothing false. There's no pretense about it. Probably all of you have experienced before a situation where someone acted like they cared and you came away feeling like that it was put on. And uh, that's the opposite of what he's speaking about here. He's speaking about a love that is true and pure, not put on. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26, speaking about our relationship as a member of the body, it says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. We're all pulling together. We talked about that a little in Sunday school class this morning. True redemption through Christ is going to build brotherhood. It's going to cause us to focus outward on others' needs and the good of others rather than focusing so much inward on ourselves. Verse 23 says that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. And I believe that this is speaking of the new birth in contrast to the natural birth into this life. Through the natural birth, we're born of corruptible seed. We're born into the human race, into a sinful nature that all of us inherit. But through the ever-living Word of God, we're born again. Through the, through the redemption story into a life of incorruptible, life that's incorruptible. And I want us to notice the credit he gives for the new birth to God's word. It's through the word that we're made aware of, the, of, of our sinfulness. It's through the word that we're made aware of God's plan of redemption. Through Christ's sacrifice. There's power in the gospel message that's given in the Word of God. Let's not discount the power that is in God's Word. We have it, we all go home and we have multiple copies of God's Word. And it's easy to take it for granted. But there is power in what God has in His Word. The power to change lives. The power to break the bondage. Or, well, I guess it's not the power to break the bondage of sin, but it's power to make us aware of what we need to do to surrender to God and, and so that that bondage of sin can be broken. <clears throat> he then compares us as humans made of perishable flesh with the grass of the field. And I thought, what a wonderful pertinent illustration for us after we just came through one of the worst dry spells we've had in the last probably about 20 years you know the, the grass of the field has no strength of itself when there's when there's no water available we saw this summer how quickly it just withers and comes to nothing 
That's what he's saying that we're like in the flesh. You know, we like to think that we possess strength, that we're something in ourselves. But how quickly our own strength, our own wisdom comes to nothing apart from God. He says the word of the Lord is not like that, but rather it's enduring and it's eternal. It's never going to perish. It's never going to lose its efficacy. As long as this world stands, the gospel will be there calling out to all who will receive it. To everyone who hears it, to make them to, to accept that message of salvation. This is the word that we have heard that has had an effect. As we have called on God the Father, it's had an effect in your life and in my life. It's the word through which we become aware of our need of salvation. And it's the word through which we're taught to live as Christ lived. And it will never lose its power. And he concludes by saying that this is the gospel that was preached unto you. We've heard that message. What are we doing with it? So just in conclusion, to wrap this up, I see in these verses laid out for us a change that's going to take place for the one who accepts the gospel message. And a change that was planned by God and made reality through Christ. And it's as life-changing, maybe we could say it's even more life-changing than a slave who has his freedom bought. It's going to be transforming. Can you imagine being a slave for years and years and years? And boom, one day you have your freedom. How life-changing that would be. The redemption that God offers you and me is more life-changing than that. And for me, one of the most remarkable things in this passage is to realize that God planned all of that before the creation of the world. And that I, for some reason, was put here Today, in this era of, of, of God's grace and made aware of what God has in place for those that will surrender to him, we're blessed beyond measure. Let's wholeheartedly embrace and accept what God has provided for us. May God bless you. We have a song.